the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. In episode one, we have an overview of the Artemis Exploration Plan, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, and a detailed explanation of the Lunar HMAP payload aboard the Artemis One launch. Now, Jacob Bleacher is the Chief Exploration Scientist at NASA. In November of 2020, he gave this overview of NASA's exploration program. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to speak to everyone today. And I'll talk a little bit about Artemis and uh, our plans for exploring the moon. Uh, I need to give us just kind of a, a good um, view of the, the expected missions and activities that we have in mind as we prepare for landing crew on the surface of the moon and then uh, continuing some sustained activities after that. Uh, but I think it's really important to point at the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, you know, because when we're talking about data, the LRO and its predecessors are uh, kind of the, the spacecraft who have collected that foundational data that we're using right now uh, to plan. Um, and so it kind of starts from there. And so we start with what data do we have in hand uh, what data products do we have in hand and what data products might we be able to make or produce from the data that we currently have? Uh, and and that, that's really the starting point that we have for planning everything. Um, and, you know, if you've been listening uh, to, to us talk about Artemis, we have Artemis 1 and 2, which are test flights that will uh, test out the systems. Artemis 2 will be a crewed mission, followed by Artemis 3, which is our crewed landing. And so, that will be done in parallel with multiple landings from uh, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services contracts, both including the South Polar region and elsewhere. Uh, so moving forward, we have a series of activities that will help us get to the point where we're confident we can land on the surface with our crew for Artemis 3, which then puts us into kind of the extended phase for, uh, for lunar exploration. And so here, looking at this uh, extending our lunar missions, um, 
for longer and longer durations, as well as preparing for a trip to Mars uh, down the road. I think an important point to draw here is, uh, you know, we talk about sustainable. And sustainable, we get asked a lot, what does that mean? Uh, well, it means different things to different stakeholders. Uh, it means, you know, maybe reusing the hardware we're sending to the moon, uh, being able to replenish, upgrade, repair the hardware that we have there. The point being that we're going to build up our capabilities on the lunar surface so that we can do better work. We can do better science. We can uh, travel farther. Uh, we'll have more capability. And that will also enable us to spend more time on the surface. All of that working together, we'll be building up assets in orbit at the gateway, uh, continuing the whole time to, uh, to land with clips. And so I think the big thing to draw, um, if we don't get too bogged down in the details, is there are a lot of things that we're going to be sending, a lot of things that are going to be collecting data. And trying to understand now how we can take advantage of this architecture to collect the right data and making sure that we know how to use it. You know, science team members back here on Earth, as well as astronauts in real time on the surface, are gonna to need to access some of this data, maybe not all of it, and maybe not all of it all the time, uh, but how do we manage this data? You can see from this, we, we talk a lot about LROs, uh, you know, collected such a massive data set. Um, and we've had years, you know, decade to look at that data. Um, but how are we going to manage all of this data on top of that data that we already have? Uh, so those are all really important questions that I think we can uh, we can work on discussing. Over. So talk just a little bit um, about CLIPS, but it's an integ integral part of, of Artemis overall. What's important about CLIPS is um, while we are directed to send our crews to the South Polar region, CLIPS gives us an opportunity to explore more broadly around the moon. So the landers that SMD is planning uh, moving forward uh, will be able to land both at the South Polar region, uh, but also globally. And that's gonna give us the context to understand our data that the astronauts are collecting the South Pole from a global sense. And so CLIPS is really critical uh, with, the, with respect to the data that are being collected uh, through those landings. That's gonna be a thread of data that we need to uh, make sure we're keeping track of and making sure that we understand how to use it effectively. And so in addition to the stationary landers uh, that will be delivered through CLIPS, uh, there are plans to put down mobile assets as well. And so we know, um, you know, for instance, with Viper, uh, that that's a whole nother stream of data. You know, now we're talking not just about um, understanding the temporal collection of data in a stationary location, but both temporally and spatially and adding that information in. This type of data will be able to ground truth uh, some of the other data we have from orbit so that we understand um, what we are interpreting from uh, our understanding of water across the South Polar region, which is a major reason that we're heading to the, to the South Pole. So these data will help us put into context what we'll be doing with respect to both ISRU, uh, but as well as uh, the data that our astronauts will be collecting early on. So again, thinking about how these CLIPS uh, landed um, uh, sensors and instruments and the data they're collecting get built into this overall data management plan. You know, understanding planetary processes, volatile cycles, uh, interpreting that impact history and revealing the record of the ancient sun, uh, being able to take advantage of the lunar surface as a unique location to observe the universe, and uh, being able to conduct some of that fundamental research uh, that we need to, to conduct to understand the lunar environment 
And then on the HRP side and human exploration, you know, understanding and uh, characterizing and mitigating the exploration risk to our crew members moving forward. You know, these are all going to involve different types of payloads. And, you know, we talked about or orbital, orbital data. We've talked about stationary landed data, mobile data that's being collected once our crew members are there. You know, they'll have payloads, but they'll also have sensors associated with vehicles and suits uh, that are all collecting data. And so how do we make sure that we manage that data appropriately so that, again, we can hit these big science objectives that we have and technology objectives that we'll have to bring us all up to current date on Artemis 3. You know, this is uh, this is that first crewed mission in the South Polar region. Uh, we'll have two crew on the surface who will be operating out of the human landing system for about six and a half days. You know, we're looking at between two and four moonwalks, EVAs outside of that habitable environment. And a, a big goal there, a big driver there working between HEO and S&D is going to be bringing home sample material. Uh, so, you know, that SDT is really going to help direct what how we uh, address these bullets down here. But, you know, you, you all know this probably better than me, you know, bringing back rock samples and bringing back uh, samples of the regolith and different techniques for doing that. Um, looking at access to some of these permanently shadowed regions, uh, you know, early missions for Artemis aren't going to be entering into the really big shadowed regions, but there's maybe room size shadowed regions where we can start to learn not only about the shadowed regions themselves, but maybe how to better um, approach our studies of those in the future. So these are all opportunities that we'll have, and the data we collect here early on will help sculpt the way we optimize our approaches in the future, uh, both uh, from a technology perspective as well as an operational perspective. We have the gateway uh, being put together. The HLS vendors have the option of using the gateway early on. Regardless of whether or not they do, the gateway will be outfitted with some payloads early on. Hermes, which is provided by NASA, the Heliophysics Environmental Radiation Measurement Experiment Suite, as well as URSA from our European colleagues, the European Radiation Sensors Array. Uh, together, uh, these two payloads monitor a, a, a broader spectrum of uh, energy radiation um, involving the sun that will help us characterize that space weather environment that the astronauts at the gateway as well as potentially at the lunar surface are going to be experiencing. So this data is going to be critical for us in understanding how to design our systems in preparation for both longer stays on the lunar surface as well as looking forward to trips to Mars. So again, we've got that data coming from the surface of the moon. We have orbiters in orbit around the moon. And then we, you know, don't forget the orbiters we'll have at uh, farther um, orbits like the near rectilinear halo orbit with Gateway. These are all going to be data that are useful throughout Artemis. And, you know, we have that kind of initial landing. There's a lot of focus on Artemis 3 right now, but, you know, that will help set the stage for identifying a place for that more sustained buildup. I talked about sustainable earlier. You know, and we're referring to that as Artemis Base Camp. And this is where you'll really start to see through collaboration with our international partners, increased collaboration with our commercial partners, just an increase in capability. So as we uh, strive to reach a cadence of about one launch per year uh, to the lunar surface with, um, with our HLS, we'll start to see delivery of uh, more capable elements like rovers, that are unpressurized uh, initially, but leading up to pressurized rovers, which increases our mobility, uh, more crew members on the surface and increased time periods on the surface. 
And, uh, you know, again, don't forget um, partnering with the, the, the CLIPS uh, providers to potentially provide additional assets on the surface that we can take advantage of. Building up to a foundational hab and, uh, you know, potential for um, longer stays there, as well as research capabilities associated with having that permanent presence, uh, or at least a permanent facility on the surface. Um, once again, you know, it really comes down to, you know, what data do we have? What data products can we create from those data? What data don't we have? What kind of tools do we have to visualize that data moving forward? In May of 2020, Steve Clark, who is the Deputy Associate Administrator for Exploration in the Science Mission Directorate at NASA HQ, gave a detailed look at the Commercial Lunar Payload Services. First, he introduced the CLIPS program. So let's talk about the LDEP elements, and, and the major part of this is the Commercial Lunar Payload Services, or CLIPS. Uh, which I think most folks have heard about. Um, it's really um, the commercial services. It's a really new, innovative uh, model that we're putting forward and we're using now to get science and technology development and exploration payloads to the lunar surface. 14 companies that are part of the commercial lunar payload services. We use task orders in which these 14 companies can bid. And these task orders list basically what does NASA want to deliver? We have a set of payloads that we want delivered to the lunar surface. Sometimes we'll dictate where we want to go, other times we won't. And that'll go into the task order to allow the CLIPS providers to propose back to us. The first two, uh, Astrobotic and Intuitive Machines, are going to be delivering the NASA-provided lunar payloads, which were the very initial set of instruments that we wanted to get going quickly in 2021. And then in 2022, we've already awarded the first delivery, and it's a polar delivery, um, to Maston Space Systems. Um, and they'll be taking um, part of the lunar surface instrument and technology payloads that were awarded and under development. And we'll be putting out the task order for the second delivery for a nonpolar delivery. So we'll be excited, uh, very interested and excited to award that. Uh, the Viper Rover delivery, um, that award, uh, we are expecting to announce in June, uh, so stay tuned. And so, as you can see, we're building up a cadence of two lunar surface deliveries per year, and uh, we will maintain that. Uh, we'll also look at ways that we may be able to increase that number with the other mission directorates who have identified needs to uh, use the commercial lunar payload services. And then he discussed the future opportunities for international partners. Overall, these, the CLIPS deliveries and future payloads, I'll first talk a little bit about the international payloads. We've been talking uh, to many of our colleagues in the various uh, international space agencies. And so those are the direct collaborations where we talk about what future opportunities there may be to fly instruments on CLIPS. And in fact, we also talk about flying our instruments on some of their future missions as well to the lunar surface. So that's one way to, to um, have international payloads uh, available for CLIPS deliveries. The other way is as part of a, the PRISM suite of instruments. And that's the next bullet is the payloads and research investigations for the surface of the moon. We put out an RFI call and we received over 239 responses to that call, which was, which was really good. 
And so we're going to put out a stage two solicitation to actually start forming up manifests for the next three CLIPS deliveries. And so international contributions to those investigations may be included as part of those calls because typically how the science mission directorate works, instrument calls, um, ROSE's calls and so forth that some of you are familiar with, in international contributions up to 30% is allowed for part of those investigations. So that's the second way of international payloads being incorporated into uh, future lunar deliveries. One of the first missions will be Viper. Viper. Viper is going to be the first uh, rover <clears throat> to the South Pole. And I'm sure most of you have heard about that. That's in development. The actual implementation or execution of this project is in the Planetary Science Division. And uh, development is going well. We're looking at uh, the delivery in uh, November of 2023, about 100 plus Earth days is the uh, projected mission duration. That's what we're designing for. And um, the instruments include a new time spectrometer, near infrared spectrometer, mass specs, and, and a drill. Um, so I'm really excited about this mission in 23. The rover itself is being uh, built at the Johnson Space Center in Texas. In orbit around the moon will be a craft called Lunar Trailblazer. Lunar Trailblazer. This is a small sat. It is currently in phase AB and going through getting ready for confirmation in the October timeframe. And we're confident that, uh, that the project will be confirmed and then um, it will be an actual project that SEO will be responsible for executing. It is an Espagrande sized craft. It won't go through all the details of the instruments on board, uh, but we have a high resolution volatiles and minerals moon wrapper and a lunar thermal mapper on here. We're very excited about doing uh, critical decadal science uh, using smaller platforms. And so we're looking forward to Lunar Trailblazer being confirmed and then um, actually getting this developed launched and delivered into lunar orbit to begin its mission. And there's a group of people who are analyzing the Apollo samples that were brought back 50 years ago. This is the Apollo Next Generation Sample Analysis Group. ANXA is the Apollo Next Generation Sample Analysis. That is ongoing now. Um, there were nine teams selected to uh, perform the analyses on the untouched Apollo samples from the samples from Apollos 15 and 17. Um, they've been stored at the curation facility at the Johnson Space Center. This is the second year of the research and analysis that has started. And so what's really interesting about this, and I think several folks get asked this question of why are we looking at samples that, you know, we've had um, since the Apollo days? Well, we have several new neck techniques that have been developed over the decades since those uh, samples were returned to analyze these samples. So now we can use those new techniques to analyze them and, and get much more rich uh, scientific data. There's also going to be science done on the Gateway, which is a space station which will be in orbit around the moon. Gateway. I'm more focused on the Gateway science part. Earlier this year, both NASA and ESA were um, selected to provide instrument suites for the first phase of Gateway. Uh, NASA's uh, developing a space weather suite uh, called Hermes, and ESA is developing the URSA instrument suite to study radiation, and they'll have a, a whole monitoring package there. And so 
with these two instrument suites flying early on, um, and we're going to have those installed pre-launch, um, we're going to have the first science done from a brand new, unique platform out in deep space. And so we're very excited about that and working closely with our HEO colleagues uh, to make that happen. And Steve Clark also gave an insight into NASA's overall science strategy. So overall, the science strategy at the moon, it's really, you know, the moon is, is truly a cornerstone for solar system science and for exoplanet studies. And it is a natural laboratory. We are going to be doing the volatile investigations with Viper, but there will be other critical missions that we will send to the lunar surface um, and to lunar orbit to study volatile cycles and study impact history. This is really an interesting time to, to set this strategy moving forward. Part of it is also working closely with uh, humans to not only do robotic science, but human exploration science as well and using robotics to assist the humans to do this. And that's really you know, where this workshop is, is focused, is to do that uh, science with humans on the lunar surface. Uh, but certainly the strategy involves not just humans, but it involves the robotics and how they can work together to achieve the science goals. Craig Hardgrove is the principal investigator for the Lunar HMAP mission. He's an assistant professor at the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. All right, thanks so much uh, for having me, and I'm excited to uh, talk to you guys about LunaMap today. Uh, so LunaMap is an example of a new type of, of NASA mission, um, and it's uh, it's much smaller than the traditional NASA missions that you might be used to. So I'll, I'll talk about um, sort of the evolution of, of this type of spacecraft and, and where LunaMap fits in and um, hopefully kind of leave you with some of the things that I think might be exciting that, that these types of spacecraft can do in the future. But just to give you a, a sense, so, so this box here is the size of about two large uh, cereal boxes that you might buy at the grocery store. The, the circular unit that you can see sort of pointing at you uh, at the base of the spacecraft is, uh, it's a gimbaled thruster. So that's about the size of a tissue box that you might have in your house. Uh, and that contains solid iodine that we heat and shoot out the back of the spacecraft to provide very low thrust that enables us to get into lunar orbit with this very small spacecraft. And then inside this box, we have the primary instrument payloads, the only instrument, which is a neutron detector, which I'll tell you about. Uh, we have a deep space radio. We have a command and data handling system that includes reaction wheels, a star tracker. Uh, we have batteries, um, power management system. And you can see the solar arrays deployed there, um, which are actually, they, they rotate on a small gimbal so that we can keep them pointed at the sun during operations. So, um, all of the large components that you would expect to find on a on a normal NASA mission, full size, you know, school bus size spacecraft, um, are are in here. Um, you just lose the size and you lose redundancy. Uh, often those missions have uh, multiple uh, layers of redundancy throughout, and on a mission like this, you don't have the the mass, the power, the volume for those types of things. So, um, so uh, this. 
just all around a, a new type of mission, but it's very small and it can be accommodated on uh, many different launch vehicles. So um, we actually uh, just were placed onto the NASA mission, the science mission directorate's quote, fleet charts, what they call it. So all of their science missions are listed here throughout the solar system. And just for the moon, uh, Luna map appears. And uh, as of, I think, last week, there's another small spacecraft called Lunar Trailblazer, uh, which will also make an appearance on this chart. We're talking about a you know, very, very small spacecraft, uh, 10 centimeters by 20 centimeters by 30 centimeters is the, the main dimensions for um, the spacecraft body. Um, and we have a science objective of matching, of mapping hydrogen enrichments uh, within and outside permanently shadowed regions, that's what is called PSRs there, at the lunar south pole at spatial scales of less than 20 square kilometers. This would improve upon the maps that were made previously by Lunar Prospector, and it would complement the maps that have been made by Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter uh, LEND, which is also another neutron detector that was sent to orbit the moon. Um, and in order to achieve the mission, we have to demonstrate deep space propulsion, navigation, in order to get ourselves into orbit around the moon, and we have to operate the spacecraft and collect our science data uh, in orbit around the moon. Uh, I'll talk about um, just the science and, and where this fits in. So these are uh, a few of the, the neutron detector uh, missions that have carried neutron detectors to planetary bodies in the solar system. In the upper left is the Dawn mission, which mapped uh, Ceres and Vesta and the hydrogen enrichments throughout the surfaces of those planetary bodies. Um, in the top middle is uh, Mars Odyssey, which also carried a neutron detector, made global maps of um, Mars water. You can see both the poles in those maps. The upper right is a messenger mission to Mercury. We also saw um, polar hydrogen enrichments at the South Pole of Mercury, or sorry, the North Pole of Mercury. Um, and uh, on the bottom two images are Lunar Prospector and Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which carried neutron instruments to the moon. And like I've been mentioning, the purpose of sending a neutron detector into orbit around another planetary body is to map hydration. And the primary uh, hydration-bearing uh, molecule is water in the solar system, whether that's ice or liquid water. Uh, in most of these cases, it's ice. And so uh, we, we map the planetary body usually at a regional scale. Regional um, meaning these instruments are not optical. You can think of them like a Geiger counter. So they're um, really mapping at the scale of, you know, tens to hundreds of kilometers. It's proportional to the altitude that the spacecraft is orbiting above the surface. So the closer you can get the spacecraft to the surface, the higher resolution or spatial resolution of the map that you can make. Most of these spacecraft didn't want to get very low <laughs> to the surface because they carry many science instruments that don't want to do that, um, or it's, it's a risky a maneuver. So. If you're not familiar with neutron detectors, um, really the, the fundamental principle is that galactic cosmic rays are bathing the entire solar system in high energy protons. Um, if you don't have a thick atmosphere, those high energy protons get down all the way to the surface and they create high energy neutrons in the surface. Interactions of those high energy protons with the nuclei that are in the planetary surface and when you generate high energy neutrons, they really just bounce around like you could think of them like ping pong balls. Um, and if they, it's just classical mechanics, if a ping pong ball hits another ping pong ball, it loses about half of its energy. 
if a ping pong ball hits a bowling ball, it really just bounces off in another in the opposite direction and retains uh, its kinetic energy. So um, that's the principle behind mapping hydrogen with a neutron detector. If you can if you can make a map of the low energy component of the neutrons that are leaking out of a planetary surface, it's a great proxy for how much hydrated material is beneath the detector. Okay, so lunar water, don't expect to find uh, a lake or even an ice skating rink. Um, it, it seems likely that, or probable, that most of this hydrogen that we're talking about is adsorbed between grains, um, and it's been remobilized over time into these regions of permanent shadow gets deposited on the surface of the moon through water-bearing comets or asteroids. And the places that it's stable of the south pole of the moon, and this is a crater rim, almost no light gets into the crater itself. And so these regions are some of the coldest in the entire solar system. We're talking about negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit or colder. And so these are the only real places on the moon which has no atmosphere where we would find water to be stable. And that's where we do see with, with many of the other instruments that we've sent, uh, enrichments, you know, signs of enrichments of, of water and water ice within these regions of permanent shadow. Um, neutron detectors integrate down to a meter. And so we can see if there's an enrichment in, in these hydrogen, hydrated phases down to a meter, which is a unique capability of these detectors. So here's our uh, 282 ground tracks will be in a 4.76 hour orbit. Uh, it's a highly elliptical orbit. That's the only way we can maintain a stable orbit with our relatively weak or very weak propulsion system, low thrust. Um, so we execute um, periodic trajectory correction maneuvers at, at Apollon when we're going the slowest uh, and make sure that we just control for the altitude. So the spacecraft is controlled either up or down to make sure that we aren't uh, too weakly captured by the moon or that we don't obviously impact with the moon. Uh, and then we let the argument of periapse uh, sweep across the moon throughout the two months of the science mission. Um, so just uh, to summarize some of the science objectives, we, we, there may be these thick subsurface ice deposits pervasive at high latitudes. Um, and it may be that they're remobilized by impacts and then buried. Uh, there's some morphologic evidence to suggest that in these simple craters. And then it's possible that through impact gardening, you've re vertically redistributed the ice and that it's it's still stable uh, in the top meter that you know, with, outside of these regions of permanent shadow. And so that's in some ways very important to understand and just as important to understand um, as the, you know, how much ice is within the regions of permanent shadow themselves. So Okay, so just now to, to finish up, just talking some about the LunaMap spacecraft. Um, we're 14 kilogram spacecraft. The solar arrays, um, they, are, they are stowed. We go into a deployer uh, when we're stowed into the rocket. And then the, the deployer opens and we uh, are pushed out on a, a push plate uh, that's spring loaded. And when we deploy, those arrays um, spread out. And they're, when, when they're deployed, they're about a meter to a meter and a half wide. So they're very large arrays and they're intended to power the, the propulsion system. So we get about 90 watts beginning of life for those arrays. Uh, the, the propulsion system uses about 65 watts when it's thrusting. Um, and so those arrays need to be sun-pointed to power the propulsion system during our cruise and transition into lunar orbit. 
Um, we, we will collect data at higher altitudes um, as we approach Paralune. Um, we, we do want to get some of the dry lunar highlands material so that we have um, a baseline for dry regolith count rates uh, to compare the polar data to. We will we'll also collect data at Apolune um, primarily for background corrections that need to be made throughout the mission. Um, but the data that we would collect at uh, higher altitudes than you know, plus minus 75 south um, shouldn't be any better spatial resolution than what was acquired with Lunar Prospector uh, or Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So, um, and, and we may not have the power budget on the spacecraft to keep the detector on for those portions of the orbit. So um, like I mentioned, we really only intend to have it on for about 20 or 30 minutes each orbit um, at, at Paralune. And then the spacecraft has a lot of maintenance and charging the batteries and other activities that uh, it needs to complete that might preclude us keeping the detector on throughout uh, each, each orbit. Craig Hardgrove, the principal investigator of that mission. And Craig is the assistant professor at the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University.